From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LeBlanc. Recently, I was with a friend. It was someone I really love and respect and have always had really great conversations with. We were at this lovely restaurant, and it had been a while since we saw one another, so I was looking forward to catching up. But when we sat down, he set his phone on the table, face up. And within a minute, the screen had lit up with a message from his girlfriend. And he looked at me apologetically as he reached down to pick it up, and he told me he was just going to let her know that we were sitting down to dinner together. But then he didn't look up from his screen again for five minutes, and I could see that he was texting back and forth with her, but also checking other messages, and then looking up something on Google. And then his daughter called, and he looked back up at me really briefly, and he explained that, you know, he was just going to pick up the phone briefly to tell her that he could call her back. But then that conversation went on for a while. And then there was another text message and so on and so forth. And it wasn't until I cleared my throat that he looked back up. And honestly, he seemed a little startled to realize that I was there. And I want to make something really clear here. This friend, he's a really busy guy. He's got a lot of people who rely on him. And I certainly don't know everything that might be going on with his girlfriend, and I I certainly understand that he wanted to take his daughter's call. So I'm not mad at all, but I'm really fascinated because for a few minutes there, my friend was diverted in so many different directions that it seemed quite clear that he'd sort of forgotten where he was and what he was doing, and it seems even who he was with. It was like he was caught in an attention trap. Gloria Mark is fascinated by things like this as well. Over the past 20 years, she's been studying the ways in which our attention spans appear to be shrinking and the interventions that we might be able to use to keep focused for longer. Gloria Mark is a professor of informatics at the University of California, Irvine, and her new book is called Attention Span, a groundbreaking way to restore balance, happiness, and productivity. Gloria Mark, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Gloria, there's a line that comes pretty early in your book, and it's pretty matter-of-factly stated, but I think it's also pretty profound in the story of our evolution as humans. You write that technology use is so commonplace and ubiquitous that it can no longer be disconnected from who we are. And I sat with this for a few moments because I also have this sense that our tools and technology aren't separate from our sense of selves anymore. Is that what you meant by that? Yes. So, you know, well, welcome to the digital world. In, in your introduction, you know, that was a very nice way of describing our lives in the digital world. And yes, our, we have become so intertwined with technology. Uh, Google is part of our conversation, right? You, it's hard for you to have a conversation with someone. Someone brings up a fact And before you know it, someone is Googling it. And if we're doing something when this potential materializes, you know, when when the candy store sort of reveals itself to us and we notice, oh, there's that looks new and shiny and tasty. If we're doing something when that happens, we often intend to return to that task. But 
you wrote that in most cases, it actually takes a long time to do that. This this really surprised me. Yeah. So so let, let me explain that. So first of all, pe- people switch screens a lot, very frequent. And we found in our research, on average, about 47 seconds that people spend with their attention on any screen before switching. And you might think, well, maybe that's not so bad if it's the same project. I write papers. I, I, I need to have a Word document. Sometimes I consult an article that I find on the web, or I might uh, look at email related to this project. And you might say, well, what's so bad about switching if it's all the same project? So we looked at our data, and this was, we did empirical studies, looking at the data to see how long people switch between projects. Turns out people spend about 10 and a half minutes on any project before switching to another project. But you don't just switch to another project and come right back. You switch to another project, then you switch again. And then you switch again, and then you start to work on another project and go back. And it takes about 25 and a half minutes on average. That's the general pattern to go back to a project in which you were interrupted. Why does attention switching cause stress? You wrote about this as well. First of all, we we know from laboratory studies that when people switch attention, uh, Blood pressure rises. There's a physiological marker in the body that indicates people are under stress. But the best way that I can explain what's going on is think about every time you do any kind of activity, you have a representation in your mind of this activity. So I write, I'm an academic, and my representation would be what what's the content i want to write about what are the kind of words i want to use what's the structure of what i'm writing and so on and then suddenly i switch and then i check my email and all of a sudden i've got a different representation you can think of this metaphor of having an internal whiteboard in your mind and every time you look at a new task you write a representation of that task And then when you switch tasks, you're erasing that whiteboard and then you're switching to this new task and you're writing that new representation on the whiteboard. And sometimes, just like with a real whiteboard, we we can't erase things perfectly and you leave a residue. And so if I'm on a news site and I, I read some gripping personal story about something horrific that happened and then I go back to my work, that story stays with me. And so we're exhausted (laughs) because we put so much mental effort into trying to keep reorienting back to our our new activities that we switched to. Even as I was preparing for our conversation today, reading your book, I could feel myself, as I often do, being pulled away by so many other things. And... When this happens to me, I always feel guilty and I feel weak. And I I tell myself, hey, dude, like, get it together, focus. But 
you write that the ebbs and flows of attention are actually quite natural. And, and guilt is a really common but sort of misplaced emotion in this context. Yeah? That's right. And and I argue against feeling guilty uh, when people can't focus extensively for long periods of time. And the reason is exactly what you said. You know, we we can't focus for extensive periods without getting exhausted in the same way that we can't lift weights all day without getting exhausted. You you need to step back. Why? We have limited mental resources. In so much as I've ever thought about where attention resides inside my brain, I suppose I've always assumed that there's like there's an attention spot in the brain, a central place where focus resides. You say that's not the case. Yeah, you're you're right. So there is no single place for attention in the brain. First, there's what's called the alerting network. And we use that when we try to maintain vigilance. Like if you're really trying to concentrate on something. And then there's a network that's called orienting. And this is when we we choose to decide what we want to focus on. And then a third network is called executive control. And this is this is really important because you know, you can think of this like an offensive lineman in in football. Uh, this this is the part of your brain that manages interference of stimuli that's that's not germane to your task. You write in your book that switching tasks is a very energy costly behavior, but also that we're constantly driven both by external stimuli and our own internal habits and patterns to divert our attention from one thing to another. So how do we resolve that? If we know that switching tasks takes up so much energy from us, that we're still drawn to do this thing where we're, we're going from here to there and from there to here. Yeah, that's <laughs> such a... Such a great paradox. Uh, and, and you're absolutely right. You know, when people tend to think of interruptions, we tend to think of things external to us, like phone calls and people coming into our office to bother us. You've or, got mail. You know, yes, yes. But it turns out we are just as likely, nearly just as likely to interrupt ourselves. And it can be from an urge to do something. It could be a memory to take care of something. Um, and, you know, conditioning is, is a big part of it as well. In fact, when we look at our data, we find that when external uh, interruptions wane, people's internal or self-interruptions kick in and, and get even higher. It's, it's as though we're determined to keep ourselves interrupted and have short attention spans. But but there are things that we can do to to keep our attention spans longer. And one of those things you've written is to limit those external stimuli. Yes, of course. That's and that's a, a an obvious thing, and and many people know that. And if you don't, you should turn off your notifications. 
If you're uh, bothered by your phone, leave it in another room, put it in a drawer. Those are simple things that we can do. Uh, You know, close, close tabs on your browser so that you won't be distracted by visual cues. Oh my gosh, Gloria, do you know how many tabs I have open on this browser right now? <laughs> uh, well, I, I can imagine. I have one browser <laughs> with very few tabs. I have another browser with tons of tabs. And when I really need to work, I I go to the browser with few tabs <laughs> open. That's a good strategy. Okay, so tell me though, like, what do I do though? What What should people do to limit the distractions that come internally that that aren't driven by these external stimuli? So I am a great believer that people can develop agency to control behavior. One of the things that we can do is to make our behavior more intentional. So, you know, going back to the idea of attention, there's, you know, some attention is what's called controlled attention. It's when you read a book and when you write, you know, you've got control over your attention. Um, other kinds of attention is automatic. And that's like when we see our phone, we have this urge to grab it. Or driving is an automatic operation. Walking is automatic. When we use our technology, we use a combination of both controlled and automatic attention. And what we can do is to make those automatic responses, those automatic behaviors, we can bring them into our conscious awareness. And when we do that, we can have control over them. I learned to probe myself and to keep asking myself to understand why I have these urges. I, you know, when I study people, I'm, I'm an observer of human behavior. And when, and in fact, I would say I'm a professional observer of human behavior. And I learned how to become a professional observer of my own behavior. And anyone can. And you do this by when you by by probing yourself when you have an urge to go to social media, you can ask yourself, why do I feel like I have to go to social media? Uh, it's usually because the task is boring or because um, uh, it's too hard or, or because it's a habit. And once you identify that, it becomes more intentional and you couldn't put a stop to it. But let me, let me mention another thing that people can do uh, that is very useful. And it's the idea of practicing forethought. And what that means is imagining how your current actions will impact your future self. And your future self could be in a few hours, or it could be at the end of the day. Imagining your future self can help put your current actions in perspective and it can help you control them. There's a sense that I think a lot of people have, I think I've always had, that being productive in terms of dedication, de- dedicating our attention to something, um, that this requires us to be in the flow. And I, I imagine this like getting into a cold river, which can be really difficult and even stressful at first. It might take a lot of effort. But then once you're there, 
you know, your reward is you're getting pulled along by the current and you don't have to do any more work and that's it. You're in the flow. But you said that what we might be better off striving for isn't flow. It's actually rhythm. Can you explain that? Yes. So first of all, let me say a little bit about flow. So if if you're an artist or a musician or you play sports or you dance which let me you, interrupt for a moment here. You you started out life as an artist. Well, started out your your academic career as an artist. That's right. I I did start out as an artist, and I used to get into flow regularly. And you know, I would be in my studio with my painting, and I would just get into flow. And before I knew it, it would be you know two o'clock in the morning or later, and uh, you know time just went by. And that's what flow is about. You're just not aware of the passage of time. But if you're a knowledge worker of any kind, chances are uh, you probably should not expect to get into flow because we use analytical kinds of thinking. But the idea of rhythm is to understand the points when your attentional resources are at their peak. And that's when you can perform best. That's when you should do your hardest work, your most creative work, because you've got the attentional resources to be able to perform. And then there's other times when our attentional resources are are low and when we're in a trough, that's the time to step back. And that's when you should do easy work or better yet, take a break. And so understanding your rhythm, right, and, and designing your day to be in sync with what your natural rhythm is for your own attentional capacity. Gloria, sometimes, you know, throughout my day, I'll I'll get distracted by something that's not necessarily work-related. I, we, ta- we spoke earlier about not feeling guilty about things, but you've written that some of these activities, some of these activities can actually be helpful in some ways. Can Can you unpack that for me? Yeah. So, you know, when when we use our attention and when it requires a lot of mental effort, right, that's when we're focused. But we can also be very engaged in something and, and not use very much mental effort at all. And that's called rote activity. That's like playing solitaire or it's when people knit. Uh, some people talk about putting golf balls or, or whatever that road activity is. My, the, the writer Maya Angelou uh, used to do crossword puzzles. She she's described that she had her big mind, which is the mind she used for writing, and her little mind, which is what she used to step back and take a break. And that's when she did crossword puzzles. You, This is a really beautiful part of your book where you're describing what Maya Angelou did while she was writing, she actually rented a hotel room so that she would have, you know, she took the art down off of the wall so she could have this place that she could just really focus on her writing. And yet she was still taking these little breaks to do road activities. So use her mind in a different way. Yes. I, I would say that Maya Angelou had agency over her behavior. And she was able to control when she was deeply focused 
And she was able to control when she needed to pull back and replenish her mental resources. And when I refer to this kind of simple activity, uh, we should be intentional and strategic about using it. And we use it to, to calm ourselves, to be able to do something that keeps the mind engaged, but does not really require effort. And it turns out our research shows that that people are happiest when they do this kind of rote activity. It, it seems to have a calming effect on people. But, you know, the danger is that we don't want to get sucked into a rabbit hole. You have written that we can maybe think of attention like a flashlight, which can be focused or diffused, and the ability to manipulate that light is like the ability to manipulate attention. And that's what you call agency, which is something that you've referred to a few times in this conversation. Agency takes a lot of practice and exercise. What, what do you suggest people do to develop that agency? Yeah. So, you know, the one of the most important things is to try to make our behaviors intentional. And the, this idea of the flashlight, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that serves as a really good metaphor for how we can be intentional uh, when we use our devices. So, you know, sometimes we want that flashlight beam to be really focused, right? Because we're doing something with controlled attention. But sometimes that flashlight beam can be very diffuse. And when it's diffuse, then we open ourselves up to more things in the environment. And, and sometimes we need to. And, um, and then sometimes we need to go back and make that flashlight beam much more focused. Um, it's, it's like when, when you take a walk, sometimes you're, you can be very focused. You know, you're, you're looking at that blue jay and it's surprising and you want to study it. And then other times you just let that flashlight beam open and we're just open to anything in the environment that, that might come along. And so both of those types of attention are really important for us. I think the assumption some people might make is that someone who writes a book about attention spans and who's been researching this topic for several decades must have perfected the art and skill of agency in their own life. Is, is that true? Or are there still things that you struggle with when it comes to attention? Oh, there, there are still things I, I struggle with. It's a process that I keep trying to improve upon. And uh, so, you know, one what, what of the things that I always had trouble with was getting exhausted. I, I wouldn't take enough breaks. I would just try to power through. And then I realized how bad my performance was suffering. And, and I was getting myself stressed, really stressed. And so I've learned to be able to detect in myself, to, to understand my own rhythm and my own capacity and limitations and when it's time for me to pull back and you know when it's time for me to tackle hard work again. You spoke 
earlier in our conversation about the importance of projecting forward. What does it look like for you if you project forward on the trajectory that you're on right now, you know, with the struggles that you've had to take the breaks you need versus perhaps if if you win that particular battle in this greater challenge of of attention? What what's the difference going to look like in your life? I I would have a much more peaceful and calmer <laughs> and fulfilling life and and you know would really feel like I can sit back and feel yeah I'm I'm fulfilled I feel rewarded and and I've I've not gotten myself exhausted and to to still feel like I have energy and creativity that's that's what I would see that seems like something worth working for. I, I certainly hope so. <laughs> That's Gloria Mark. She's a professor of informatics at the University of California, Irvine. And her new book is called Attention Span, A Groundbreaking Way to Restore Balance, Happiness, and Productivity. Gloria Mark, thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday on UPR and Thursdays and Sundays on KCPW. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by a generous grant from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University and from public radio listeners like you. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.